is Sit Rep on BFBS. The army is stepping in to provide last-minute Olympic security. Mr. Speaker, in this country we have the finest military personnel in the world. They stand ready to do their duty, whatever the nation may ask. Al-Qaeda appear to be moving on to pastures anew. Could Mali in North Africa be the new Afghanistan? And as Britain suffers a summer of rain, we look at the part the weather plays in warfare. Hello, this is Glenn Manselin for Kate Jabot this week. Now, the government has confirmed that 3,500 extra soldiers are to be drafted in to man checkpoints at the Olympics. The decision's been taken because the private security firm G4S can't recruit and vet enough staff in time for the Games due to start in a fortnight. The Home Secretary, Theresa May, has told the Commons it was a prudent decision. Let me reiterate that there is no question of Olympic security being compromised. Mr Speaker, in this country we have the finest military personnel in the world. They stand ready to do their duty, whatever the nation may ask. Our troops are highly skilled and highly trained, and this task is the most important facing our nation today. I know we can rely on our troops to help deliver a safe and secure Olympic Games that London, the country and the whole world can enjoy. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, has said that there remains no specific threat to the Games and that the UK is ready to provide a safe and secure Olympics. A little earlier, I spoke to Colonel Richard Kemp, a former commander in Afghanistan, and I asked him if he thought it was a bit late in the day for such a major change. Well, it is a bit. We've known about the Olympics in London for seven years, and it, it is a bit shocking that a mere couple of weeks before the Olympics is due to start, suddenly another 3,500 people are required to help security. I mean, as I understand, most of these soldiers are coming from British forces Germany. It's going to be a change in role for them, isn't it? Will they be ready in time? They will be ready in time. The, the, the army has time and again has showed its ability to react to, to new requirements very, very quickly. Uh, of course, what we shouldn't forget is that many of the soldiers who are going to be uh, taking part in the Olympics, um, this new 3,500 particularly, will have just come back from operations in Afghanistan. Others will be preparing to go there. And, of course, they will have been looking forward, no doubt, in many cases, to well-deserved holidays with their family, probably already booked. So it'll be quite shattering, I think, for the the uh, the families as well as the soldiers concerned. I mean, talking about morale, some of these soldiers uh, we're talking about will have recently returned, as we said, from Afghanistan and probably looking forward to summer leave with their families. And, I mean, it's just going to be a whole different thing for them and possibly facing redundancy as well. Uh, and that's, that's going to be a, a difficult morale situation, isn't it? It is very difficult. I mean, I, you know, I, I speak quite a lot to, um, to, to ser- soldiers who are still serving of all ranks. And I, the, the impression I get now is, is, is morale is quite fragile across the armed forces. I don't think that affects in any way their fighting spirit in Afghanistan. But back home, I think a lot of people are beginning to wonder what the hell they're involved with when, when they, their regiments are being disbanded, they're being told they're being made redundant, they're, they're losing out in various ways as a result of a cuts in allowances and erosion of their overall package. Um, and, and now on top of it, they then get thrown this kind of fastball, which, you know, I, I've, I've served in the army for 30 years. I know they will react extremely well. I know they'll be very professional and I know they will be at the Olympics with a smile on their face and a vigilant look in their eye for people who are up to no good. And they'll do a very good job. But it is, it is at a price. Do you think this is the government again taking advantage of the that the forces can do, will do attitude? 
Well, frankly, I, I wouldn't describe it as taking advantage. The fact is that when anything goes wrong in this country, the last resort, the thing that you can always utterly depend on, is the armed forces. And when and it ranges from fuel tanker driver strikes through to uh, bin men not not operating properly, prison strikes, and numerous other activities flooding. When it goes wrong. Ultimately, the armed forces is there, and quite rightly too. It's quite right. But what what is inexcusable is uh, is something like this, which must have been it must have been possible to foresee the requirement that that's now come into the open. Thinking about uh, these guys that are coming across from Germany, I mean, have we got any details about where they're going to be billeted for this period? Well, I, I've heard rumours in the last during the course of the morning about um, you know ha- hangars and drill halls and school halls and things like that. So it'll be, compared to what most soldiers are used to in places like Afghanistan, it'll probably be the lap of luxury. But nevertheless, it will be very rudimentary, harsh conditions. And I think my my view is that the government should not spare a single penny on getting the best possible facilities they can for these troops so that, you know, if it costs, if it costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of extra pounds to do it then do it because they are having the next three the next few months next few weeks of their lives effectively um, thrown into disarray by this this uh, unexpected activity and they should be properly looked after and I'd also uh, and I've made this point several times this morning I would also expect and hope that the public will show their appreciation when they encounter soldiers who are doing very mundane very difficult duties and doing them very well I hope they'll show their appreciation not just for for what they're doing now, but also for what they do for the country. What is your general and overview of the security arrangements that are in place now for the Olympics? Well, I've been following this very closely indeed over the last number of years, and particularly in, in recent months, and I'm very confident that um, the the security arrangements that are going in place, that have been put in place, are as good as they can be. They're very comprehensive. They provide both real hard security against terrorist attack, which is, of course, the main threat from Islamist terrorists, um, but also a, a very good level of deterrence and very visible deterrence. For example, the, the positioning of very powerful warship in the Thames, the positioning of anti-aircraft missiles on blocks of flats in, in London. These things not only are a very good security measure, but they also send a very clear message not to try anything on during the Olympics. And I think I've got every reason to believe it will work. Colonel Richard Kemp speaking to me earlier. BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Christopher, how serious is this? It's serious, but not perhaps in the way people sometimes imagine. It's serious as far as the Home Office is concerned. Um, When they awarded this contract, they were given assurances that they could provide 10,000. Now, where did the 10,000 figure come from? It was almost, almost plucked out of the air. They didn't realise at that stage what security involved. Second part is they didn't realise the extensive problems of looking at an IS situation. And that is, and if you deploy any number of uh, people, security guards, what happens when they go sick? What happens if they fail their training? What happens, as it's happened, uh, that they fail the security checks? And a lot of guys have gone through all the training, got their uniforms, got know exactly where they're supposed to be, failed the security training. And so it is largely incompetence on part of the Home uh, Office for not keeping track on what was a very, very, very difficult task anyway because the whole thing about providing security, you don't have that number of people. If you want 10,000, you've probably got to recruit somewhere in the region of 22 or 23,000 to make sure the thing works. And how do you think this makes Britain look on the world stage? Oh, it's all right. You know, it's no great problem. I mean, you think about all the people who are interested in the Olympics and they're coming here. 
most of them, or a lot of them, are so used to seeing people in uniform, security people in uniform, on their own streets anyway. So I don't think there's a great... You know, it's not a great problem. I mean, there's already a noticeable step up in security in London. The police are more visible on the streets and a number of arrests have already been made. Are we ready for this now? Um, as ready as you can ever be. Um, but, you you know, you go and nick a load of people in, as, as they've been doing in the Midlands and in London, etc., bullying them in the slammer, questioning to try to find other people. What do you want? You get one guy who goes through the whole system. That's when it didn't quite work. But so far, so good. Simply don't try and park in London. Sit right. Still to come, could Mali in North Africa be the new Afghanistan? And defending defence, what could the Lord's reform mean for you? BFBS SIPREP. Major donors have pledged to give Afghanistan $16 billion in development aid as they try to prevent the country sliding back into chaos after foreign troops leave in 2014. BFPS reporter Rosie Layden has spoken to the International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, who's just returned from the Tokyo Donor Conference. She asked him if he was satisfied with the level of support offered to Afghanistan post-transition. It should not be forgotten that uh, when the Najibullah regime came to an end and he was found hanging from a lamppost in Kabul. That was not because the regime had been defeated militarily, it was because the Russians had stopped paying the bills. And though it's very important to give people confidence in Afghanistan that the international community will be there beyond the drawdown of troops and the transition period, giving strong support so that the hard-won gains that have been made, not least by our brilliant armed forces in Afghanistan are not lost thereafter. Do you think you've got the balance right between troops coming out in 2014 and the level of cash coming in to support the mission after that? I think in terms of the transition, that is going pretty well, really. More than half the country has now been transitioned. Over the next few months, we'll see more than 75% of uh, the country being transitioned. Um, and progress in that respect is pretty good as well. I mean, there are always setbacks. While I was in Afghanistan uh, last week, Tragically, three soldiers lost their uh, lives in a green on blue. But, uh, you know, th this is an extremely difficult situation. Um, and I think that progress is clearly being made. You mentioned that green on blue incident, which has a huge impact on the trust between NATO nations and local security forces. That has to have an impact on transition. That, that is true, but equally I spoke to many soldiers who were involved in training the police and the Afghan military. And although that awful tragedy took place while I was in Afghanistan, there are many, many examples of how the training is going extremely well, how skills are being imparted, and a very good relationship is being built up with, between British troops and the ANSF. Historically, there was a battle with uh, NATO nations to provide enough troops for the deployment in Afghanistan. Are you concerned you might have similar problems with persuading international partners to step up to the plate with financial donations? Well, we've had the Chicago conference, which specifically addressed the funding for the Afghan National Security Forces, the ANSF. We've now had the Tokyo conference, which has um, met the shortfall, identified 
by the World Bank up until 2015. Britain has committed to continue funding at the current level of £178 million through to 2017 um, and to make clear commitments beyond that time. Um, and I think that's very important. A number of other countries have done the same as Britain. Um, others have gone to 2015. But everyone on the international community who is involved has made this commitment for the long term to avoid uh, the mistakes that have been made in, in, in the past. International Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell speaking there to Rosie Layden. Well, we're joined by Dr. Martin McCauley from the University College London. Dr. McCauley, is the international community doing enough for Afghanistan post-2014? Uh, it's a very difficult question to answer because um, the situation in Afghanistan is uh, quite volatile uh, because if you take the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and the Turkmen in the north, they are quite determined uh, to control that territory and not allow the Taliban, the Taliban, Pushtun, up to Kabul and so on. So it's a divided country. And therefore, it's going to be very, very difficult for uh, external actors uh, to influence it. They can go in and they, they can train and so on and so forth. But it's down to the Afghans. And I would see Afghanistan basically being split into two groups. Christopher Lee, what's your view? Um, first and foremost, in 2014-2015, when this all starts to withdraw, it's the way it is being withdrawn at the time. And what is the response of Taliban? What is the response of Pakistan, especially because Pakistan holds the, the solution to a future Afghanistan? What is the response to, of India, who don't want the Pakistanis to have too much influence? What is the response of Pakistan, because they don't want the Indians to get into it? What is the response to the uh, Central Asian Republics? What is the response of Iran? So the response of people outside is very important. Then we come to who will be leading Afghanistan in this transition period and then after, say for the next five years. Will it be President Karzai? He says no, he do, he's not going to. What are the warlords going to be doing? Which is more or less what Marty McCauley is, is saying here. And what is going to be the state of the Afghan National Army um, well before the handover? Now you put that lot into uh, a, a box and I reckon you come up with labels on it and said, so far unanswered. And this is the problem of people who meet in places like Japan, Tokyo, to talk about this, they actually don't know what they're buying into, and the majority of them just want to get out. Martin, what about financially? Is everybody putting their hands <coughs> in their pockets? Are some being more generous than others? Uh, yes, but uh, the Afghans complain that a lot of the aid that's gone in so far goes to foreign contractors and to foreign security firms. And if you look at the Afghan budget, 97% of the Afghan budget is foreign aid. 90% of the gross domestic product of Afghanistan is foreign aid. That's a country which basically lives off the international community. You take all that away, the place collapses. Uh, but in the north, they have, they have oil, they've got gas, they've got gold and so on and so forth. The Chinese are in there developing copper and the Chinese want to play a major role in developing uh, Afghanistan. And they want to make sure that uh, the Taliban doesn't send any uh, Islamists into Xinjiang, Western China and so on. Uh, so it's a big security problem for them. But China has to be very careful because if they're seen to be siding with NATO, if they're siding with the Western world uh, in Afghanistan, trying to solve the problems, the Taliban may take this very badly and attack them afterwards. So therefore, China is a major player here and uh, it's playing both sides. You see, you see, the point Martin mentioned, uh, gas reserves, etc. Potentially, Afghanistan is one of the richest countries 
in that region. The Americans this week have declared that Afghanistan after 2014 is going to be their newest best friend. The official term is a non-NATO ally. The Afghanistans are saying, well, give us new tanks. We want the German Leopards. The Americans are saying, no, 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 you can have our old M60 patents, etc. They've got a lot of American equipment. Four billion, the Afghans are asking, each year, four billion US dollars to buy military equipment. When you've got a society which is based on entirely security problems, that's where the majority of budget's going to go, other than into the back pockets of a lot of people who are very, very corrupt. And that's something that Karzai hasn't fixed yet. I mean, briefly, are we likely to see more green-on-blue type incidents before the troops leave? <laughs> uh, you, you almost do. I mean, that, that's got nothing to do with the politics. It's got nothing to do with the security situations. That is happenstance, and that is the one thing you can't control. i tell you one thing. It's remarkable that there haven't been more. Can we talk a little bit about al-Qaeda now? Christopher, it appears that they've moved on from Afghanistan to northern Africa. This is something that you mentioned on this programme a couple of weeks ago. Can you expand on that? OK, Mali is sort of sub-Saharan Africa. It's got a bit of the desert, quite a lot of the desert. Um, but it's, it's where Gaddafi used to support this country. It's, it's south of that. It's African. Uh, there is no government now because the government is, has collapsed. Al-Qaeda in, uh, uh, in Islamic Maghreb, which is the title of the al-Qaeda in that region, has now controls 300,000 300, square miles of Mali. They've got an airport. They've got three airports, actually. They've got arms dumps. They've got an aircraft. They're getting other stuff being brought in. This is an Islamic revolution, uh, and it is starting to do things uh, that we saw in Afghanistan. Now, everybody knows the name of the most famous place in Africa, but nobody realizes it's in Mali, Timbuktu. And it used to be a gag, you know, Kipling <laughs> gag, Timbuktu. Timbuktu is the most important city in that area. The Islamicists are taking it over. We are seeing, I believe, the beginning of a new Afghanistan. The problem for a lot of people in America, in the Americas, and in Europe, is that we've all got an interest in that, in that country, not only Mali, but we've got an interest in the countries around Mali. And potentially, that is going to be a bit of a route march to a place about which certainly the Foreign Office seems to know very little. Martin, what can you tell us about Mali? I mean, can you just give a, a brief overview from your point of view? Uh, Mali is south of Algeria and Libya, and a lot of the arms coming into Mali... Uh, in fact, coming from Libya because the place is surfeit. Uh, it's Muslim. It, it's Francophone. It used to be a French colony. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in football, uh, Mohamedou Diara of Fulham. Uh, remember Freddy Canute, who used to play for Spurs, now in Spain. So therefore, there is some relationship with Mali. Mali is a vast place and very poor, uh, and it's Sunni. Therefore, that fits Al-Qaeda. And you've got the Tuareg, you've got, you've got tribes in the north. These are the guys in the blue cloaks and things that you yes, see in the great yeah. films, aren't and they? they? They don't want to be in Mali. They want to be independent because they're not Arabs. They don't see themselves. They see themselves quite different and so on. And some of them want independence. Some of them don't. Some of them are Islamist. Some of them are not and so on. So that, if you like, it's a real mess. And the reason why the country collapsed was because the government in Bamako in the south, uh, they decided that uh, they were going to do something about the rebellion in the north, and uh, they didn't, and the whole place collapsed. Can I, can I just ask Martin this one, because I'm not sure about this, but my guess is this. We went into Libya to relieve Libya, yeah? And we did that, 
and we got rid of Gaddafi. Gaddafi kept Mali in control. Basically, what we did, i.e. the Western-led lot in, in Libya, we sort of opened the door for al-Qaeda, Martin. Yes, they walked straight in. And uh, there's other people say that the Algerian jihadists uh, who are kept under uh, lock and key in, in uh, Algeria, some of them are going down into Mali, and also that Algerian military intelligence is also there because it's very, very important for it. Uh, the, there's a West African uh, Economic Union which is terrified of this because uh, if the Tuareg demand independence, the whole place falls apart because every group will, will claim independence and so on. It's very, very fragile, uh, and uh, you're looking at the North basically now out of control uh, and uh, who's going to go in? Uh, 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 the uh, Libya caused the problem, Algeria has caused the problem, uh, and uh, uh, will the West eventually uh, come in? Uh, and this, the, also the, uh, the Islamists in northern uh, Nigeria uh, are extremely active, uh, so therefore this whole area now is, uh, is boiling. And Glenn, we had exactly the same sort of conversations, I remember, at the beginning of the Afghanistan thing. Would you say that the MOD has put this on the probable rather than the possible? And what does that mean for the military? The recent cuts make it clear that Britain doesn't want to deal with another Afghanistan. OK, do you remember in the, re in, in the outline we now have of the way the army's set up, you've got the sort of fast reaction lot, then you've got people who go in for the longer term. The fast reaction, that the, the first part of the reorganisation, they're the guys that are getting out the maps the approaches. If you went there, who do you have to fly over? How would you get permission? What would the opposition be like, etc.? That is not just a classroom exercise anymore. It's we might not necessarily go ourselves, but we might be asked to go in support. And that is where we've got to. Dr. Martin McCauley, is this the new Afghanistan? I think it is. Because if you look at northern Nigeria, which is uh, outside, basically outside the control of, of the, the capital of the south, and the West, uh, and if you look at uh, Mali, the fear that the Malian, this this northern rebellion, will then penetrate westwards into Niger, which is a huge reserve of uranium and so on, uh, it's all boiling up now. Dr. Martin McCauley from the University College London, thanks for joining us. This is BFBS Sidrap. Now, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, has said he'll have one more try to see if an agreement can be reached about re the reform of the House of Lords. In a speech to Conservative MPs, he raised the idea of a small elected element of the Lords, which is different to the original plan for 80% of members to be elected. Earlier this week, 91 Tory MPs voted against the legislation. Many members of the Upper House speak on behalf of the services, some of whom, but not all, are ex-military. So what would reform mean for defence? Well, Former First Sea Lord, Admiral Lord West, joins us now. Lord West, what do you make of the planned reforms? Uh, well, I think all of us uh, feel that the House of Lords needs uh, some change, uh, and that's a common feeling uh, across all parties, I think, and uh, actually across Britain. But it's certainly not an immensely high priority at the moment, uh, and it needs careful thought before it's done. And I fear that the, the legislation that was put forward, this legislation, uh, is badly written and... Uh, badly put together and comes up with some quite um, ridiculous ideas that will cause huge constitutional problems. So, so I'm, I'm very glad that it seems to be having difficulty at the moment. Apart from anything else, if we go to a, a largely elected Lords, and that was what was proposed in the, in the legislation that was put before the Commons, 
um, you do lose, exactly as you say, the sort of people like ex-chiefs of defence staff and ex-senior military officers. You may get one or two in the 20% they were talking about, but you certainly won't have lots of them. And one of the problems, I believe, with the Commons and the Lords is there are too few people who have experience of the military, having served in the military. Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, some, some of the senior officers there who are now in the House of Lords. What sort of services they offer to the forces? Well, I, I think, for example, at the, uh, the, um, any of the debates on, on pure forces issues, a lot of those do the forces covenant, for example, and having a coroner for the forces and things like that, the, the ex-chiefs of defence staff and the senior military officers in the Lords were able to get a lot of support from other members of the Lords and put a lot of pressure on to ensure that there was a proper forces covenant. I don't think there would have been otherwise um, because I think uh, David Cameron was going to let it just slide. Um, and similarly with the coroner for the forces, again, huge pressure put on from that quarter. And we are able, because we, we are in the Lords with... Uh, other colleagues all the time, we are able to swing their thoughts and their views to get them on side. Now, th those are two examples of, I think, major achievements which will help our people in the forces. But also, when it comes to things like uh, commenting on and, and opposing or sometimes supporting um, various cuts and things like that, where they're a conscience and they're able to talk sensibly about the military having served, you know, normally for sort of 40 years or so in the military and having seen all the changes, the the sort of daft proposals sometimes that various politicians have put up and seen the what's chaos has ensued, and they're able to speak very sensibly about that, and I think that has huge value for, for our military. It leads me to ask you, I mean, what would happen to the services lobby in the Lords if people like yourself and former military chiefs that we talked about weren't there? Well, I think, I think it would... I think the, the, on, on the original plans that were put forward by Mr Clegg, I think they would be severely weakened and uh, we could easily find we've hardly got any military uh, voices there. In the same is actually true of surgeons, doctors, uh, experts in insurance field, experts, uh, industrialists, all of those people who add so much to the Lords because what, what, what I'm afraid that, uh, that the Deputy Prime Minister seemed to forget was that the House of Lords does not actually uh, make legislation. He keeps talking about the fact you know, only elected people should make legislation. I agree with that. But the Commons makes legislation. All that the Lords does is it actually uh, looks through it line by line, the legislation, and makes sure it makes sense and gives advice uh, about how to uh, rephrase certain things so it can actually be applied properly and things like that. We don't make legislation in the Lords. I could not agree more that if you make legislation, you should be voted for. But that's done by the Commons. Christopher Lee, the Lords have made a substantial contribution to fighting the cause for the forces, haven't they? Yeah, and it's not just the old and bold. It's not, not you know, it's not just the crusties on the back benches of the, of the Lords somewhere. You take something like, I mean, with pity to listening, actually, because I was going to say something nice. Admiral <laughs> West, for example. Um, Tremendous career, goes in with all that experience into the ministry, knows what he's talking about, knows the politics of it, gets into the into Lords and can make some major con uh, contribution. You also got to remember that most of the military and the civilians, people who are not military, who are in this sort of position to speak, they're crossbenchers, they're apolitical, and that's the importance of, uh, of all this. Lord West, just to finish off briefly, how do you think this is likely to play out? Well, I, I think if one looks, at, if you looked at the, the figure work for what happened in the Commons, I think it was uh, altogether counting abstentions as well. It was over 100 um, 
conservative backbenchers are clearly are totally opposed to this. If you forget people who are in ministerial posts, that's over half of the um, of the Tory MPs. And I think David Cameron's got a real problem on his hand. And what I find worrying is this uh, proposal that he put to Clare Guy, as I understand it, yesterday and mentioned the 1922 committee of having, let's have a small number of 95, is purely a sop to... Mr. Clegg, that is not the basis on which you should change the UK constitution. Admiral, is, this is too important to, play, to think you're playing little political games. I, I, I'm rather shocked, actually, by that. Admiral Lord West, thank you so much for joining us. So far, it's been a miserable summer of bad weather in Britain, although the sun is shining today a little bit. It doesn't look like there's going to be an end to it anytime soon. But bad weather isn't always bad news in wartime. Christopher, how does the weather affect war? Has it ever changed the course of a battle? Oh, yeah, it has. I mean, if you go back, if you, you know, if you go back to Moses and the Red Sea, uh, uh, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, that was all about the weather. But more importantly, uh, 1066, there was William of Normandy stuck on the north French coast, can't get ashore, can't get across the channel because October remember so the wind is actually pushing him on onto the North Kent coast and suddenly the uh, North French coast suddenly the wind changes he can make the landing you've got the conquest I mean he'd probably come later on 1588 the Spanish Armada it was the weather that wrecked the Armada it wasn't the British fleet 1805 well battle of Trafalgar before Trafalgar the French fleet were found by another admiral and suddenly fog broke in or, or came down and they couldn't duff them up now if that had ha- if that if the fog hadn't have turned up we wouldn't have had we wouldn't have had uh, the battle of Trafalgar we probably wouldn't have Trafalgar Square even 1815 Wellington battle of Waterloo it rained it chucked it down the night before all to uh, Wellington's advantage interestingly before every major battle of Wellington it rained and then 1917 Passchendaele and what do we talk about now in Afghanistan the fighting season that's all about the weather. And, of course, we've got to mention in Afghanistan the fighting season, of course. The fighting season is particularly important. But, you know, that's not new. The military used to pack it in during the winter. They used to come home or used to strike camp and, and, and just lie down for the winter. You couldn't fight in that sort of weather. <laughs> well, there we go, the weather. Uh, who knows what it's going to be like. Uh, it's, it's not particularly pleasant uh, uh, today, but there is a little bit of sunshine out and about. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Dr. Martin McCauley and our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Join the debate on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. Kate's back at the same time next week. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And from me, Glenn Mansell, time for me to say goodbye to you. Bye-bye now.